When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Talia Bacassis. And I'm Kim France. And welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. So we have a super fun guest today. We have Karina Longworth. Uh, Karina is a film historian and critic who turned her love of old Hollywood into the hugely successful podcast, You Must Remember This. The show tells the fascinating and unknown stories of old Hollywood. And Karina also wrote a book about Howard Hughes called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood. Welcome, Karina. Thanks for having me. I love your guys' podcast. Oh, thanks. Thank you. How are you doing these days? Um, I'm, you know, I think that I had sort of adjusted to coronavirus and the quarantine. And then now there are many more things happening in the world. And so it's a process of trying to take in everything that's happening and trying to figure out how to appropriately respond. So the new season of You Must Remember This tells the story of Polly Platt. So tell us who was Polly Platt? So I think if people have heard of her at all, at least besides for certain cinephiles, they've heard of her as being one part of this sort of legendary 1970s Hollywood love triangle. She was married to Peter Bogdanovich, and she was his creative partner. She was a production designer, and she worked with him to sort of find material and develop stories for his first few films, including The Last Picture Show, on the set of which her husband Peter fell in love with the 19-year-old starlet Sybil Shepard. And Mm. Peter basically left his 32-year-old wife and the mother of his two kids, including an infant, for this young actress. 
Um, and then Polly continued to work with Peter on two more films after that happened um, because they had this great creative collaboration and also because the state of things for women in Hollywood at th- that time made it really difficult for a woman who was um, powerful and opinionated and working behind the scenes to actually, you know, find creative partnerships. And then she, you know, after their last film together, which was Paper Moon, um, their, you know, collaboration soured and Polly went on to have her own independent, you know, very successful career um, as a production designer and then as a screenwriter and a producer. And so she ended up working on movies like The Barbra Streisand Version of A Star is Born, The Bad News Bears, Terms of Endearment, Broadcast News, Say Anything, Bottle Rocket. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah, Bottle Rocket. Throughout that whole time, you know, she had a lot of struggles with alcoholism and as a single mom. And she was very, very conscious of being a woman in her 50s in Hollywood in the late 80s and 90s. And and she was, you know, sort of constantly like shaving years off of her age and and (laughs) trying to pretend that her granddaughter was her daughter and things like that, because she was really aware of this idea that that women in Hollywood, even if they're not actresses, have a shelf life. Right. Um, Interesting. And so my podcast season is is based on her unpublished, unfinished memoir, which she was working on over the last 10 years of her life. She died in 2011 of ALS. Um, and she ended up not finishing the memoir in part because she she kind of just got depressed and she felt like, you know, nobody wants to nobody cares about how I felt about all these things. Like nobody cares about my point of view. And. Her daughters, who are also Peter Bogdanovich's daughters, got to the point where they're like, no, I we think our mom's story is really important. And our dad has had platforms to tell his story, but our mom hasn't. And so I was connected to them. And, um, you know, they graciously entrusted their mom's unpublished memoir with me. And I've kind of fleshed it out into this podcast season, which encompasses her whole life. You called her the invisible woman, which I found really intriguing before I even started to listen. Like, why did you call her the invisible woman? Well, it's a phrase she actually uses a couple times in her memoir. She talks like um, she uses it in the context of the relationship that her husband was having with this other woman on the set of the movie in which they were all working on. She said that I felt invisible. I felt unauthored and invisible. Hmm, Um, But she's also used phrases throughout the memoir as um, I've you know, I felt like nobody could see me. I felt unseen. And so I thought that was a really powerful idea. And, you know, to be honest, it's something I've felt myself like I'm married to a film director. And, um, you know, I find that when I go to sort of events with him (laughs) that are about him, um, you know, I am sort of expected to look good and not speak. Um, Oh, wow. And like nobody really cares about me and and what I do. You know, it's like the best case scenario is that I am like highly photographable and not a human being. (laughs) And so to imagine what Polly went through as somebody who not only, you know, was this person's wife, but was also really felt that she was a 50-50 creative collaborator and was willing to work like that in a world in Hollywood in the 70s in which she knew she wasn't going to get full credit, but at least she would be respected by her husband and collaborator. And then to, you know, basically be discarded because she wasn't as young and sexy. Um, You know, it was traumatic for her in a way where it had lasting reverberations for her entire life. How did you get interested in her? 
So I've been interested in her for a long time. I mean, this story of this love triangle on the set of The Last Picture Show was one of the things that got me interested in 1970s Hollywood. I remember when The Last Picture Show was put out on home video for the first time, I was a young teenager. And it was it was an awakening for me to that period, because before then, you know, I'd been into like Singing in the Rain and The Wizard of Oz, but I hadn't, you know, really been interested in this sort of late 60s, 1970s Hollywood Renaissance period. Um, And so I got really into that period as a later teenager and then in college. And then the book um, Easy Riders Raging Bulls came out in 1998 when I was in college. And that was a real foundational text for turning these directors like you know, Scorsese, Spielberg, George Lucas, Bogdanovich, Friedkin, um, turning them into these sort of flawed, gi- flawed giants, like putting these, you know, men who often behaved very badly, had addiction issues, you know, were horrible to women, putting them on a pedestal and saying that all of those things were fine because they were geniuses. Mm-hmm. But that right. book also I- included interviews with a lot of those men's like mostly former wives and girlfriends who had been part of their early careers and then kind of like discarded. And the book takes advantage of being able to interview those women to, you know, kind of get dirt about the men, but isn't really interested in the women themselves. And so that's how I first found out, you know, about sort of Polly's life a little bit and her point of view on things. But there were no other resources to go to um, to really learn about her. And then In, I think, 2012, I wrote a book proposal, you know, wanting to basically tell the story of the the women of Easy Riders Raging Bulls, women like Polly Platt, Marsha Lucas, who is George Lucas's wife and editor, um, who has never worked since they divorced. Um, Wow. Wow. Toby Rafelson, who was married to Bob Rafelson, who's still alive, and she was his production designer. Um, But I didn't sell that book, couldn't sell it. (laughs) Nobody was interested. (laughs) Really? um, yeah, and you know, to be honest, when I when the Polly Platt material, when I first started talking to her daughters and they're like, "What should we do with our mom's memoir?" My first impulse was to try to sell it as a book, you know, to try to flesh it out because it's it's not publishable in its current form; it is unfinished. But I mm. I had a few ideas about the ways in which I could do research to flesh it out, and my you know. Um, <laughs> I had a first look deal with the publisher that published my last book, and they rejected it without even asking for a meeting. I mean, wow. they, they were oh, not wow. interested at all. And and my book agent, who's still my book agent, you know, was like the commercial prospects on this are nil. Oh. And, you know, the, 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 the his issue was like, nobody's ever heard of this lady. And it's like, well, that's why you need to write a book about her. Right, right. I mean, it's kind of like the ways that we as women prop up the men in our lives and prop up the men in society. Like there are all these stories also of scientist teams where the woman has supported the man's career and he gets the spotlight. It's um, well, that great book, that great movie, The Wife, which was based on Meg Wallitzer's book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what was that? Um, it was Meg Walter wrote a book about um, a wife, the wife of a author who wins the Nobel Prize. And it takes place mostly over the weekend that they go to accept the Nobel Prize. And you find out, I mean, I'll ruin it. I'll, <laughs> you, you find out that actually the wife has been writing his books all along. Oh, right. It's discouraging when you start thinking about it. Um, What was the most surprising aspect of Polly's story? I guess the thing that hit me the hardest was when I write about women and their experiences, 
Um, I like to include things that happen in their personal lives, but not necessarily give things like romances more weight than professional events. Mm -hmm. But with Polly, it was so everything was so wrapped up when she was involved with Peter Bogdanovich that when they broke up, she was affected by it for her entire life. And it wasn't just because she had lost her husband. It was because she had lost her creative partner. And that, mm. like, that creative breakup was something that she never got over. And was it was still bothering her. And it was still impacting the way she behaved in other professional situations 30 years later. Like, more than the marriage part of it. Yeah. Because hmm. she married again. She had other relationships. Romantically, she got over him, but she didn't get over what she saw as this creative betrayal. She never felt like she was able to find that collaborative relationship again. And she tried. She tried to do it with other people, but she was never able to. It's like doing drugs, right? It's like the first time you take ecstasy, you have a truly ecstatic experience. And then every other time you're chasing it. For her, it was like she felt like she had had that with Peter, and then it was taken away from her, not by her choice, and then she just kept chasing it. <laughs> Only the listeners who have done ecstasy are going to get it, though. <laughs> or any drug. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have the actress Maggie Siff from Mad Men and Billions, who I've loved, reading the role of Polly. How, how was she to work with? Oh, she's so great. I work with her two days a week and, um, you know, remotely. <laughs> and um, she's just she's really connected to the material and really kind of like found a way to channel Polly. And she's just, you know, bringing it to life in a way that I find really emotional. It's it's been terrific. So you've done episodes about so many unknown subjects. And in this moment, it feels important to mention that you've done a lot of stories about racism in old Hollywood. My mom used to really love Lena Horne singing. What was the story you told about Lena Horne? Lena Horne had signed with MGM um, in the early 1940s. She had been sort of a big publicity case of MGM is going to have their first black superstar. And so as part of that, you know, she was sent around the country to these military bases to sing. Um, but she faced incredible racism and segregation. You know, the the very idea of putting her in that position it was it was a token sort of situation of trying to appease the NAACP and other activist groups um you know they actually did not treat her like a white starlet at all um they created a few all black musicals around her and other than that she would be cast as a singer in a movie featuring a mostly white cast in scenes that could be cut out from the movie when those movies played in the south um, no way. Yeah, because of Jim Crow laws, there was an absolute revulsion of seeing African-Americans on screen and movie theaters were segregated. And generally, um, movie theaters would refuse to play movies that involved African-Americans um, in the South at that time. So that was one part of it. And then another part of it was that she is out there on these USO tours singing in military bases and um, those environments were often segregated as well. Um, you know, there would, you know, be hotels that she couldn't stay at. There would be um, buses she wasn't allowed to ride, just, you know, sort of endless humiliations day after day after day. And so um, there was a publicity campaign, which was, you know, telling telling the world that Lena Horne is going to be, you know, just like Betty Davis or just like Ava Gardner. But in reality, every little tiny thing and every big thing was different. Wow. Can you tell us also the story you did on Dorothy Dandridge? 
Yeah, that was actually part of a series I did called Fake News, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon, which was based on this book called Hollywood Babylon, which is for a lot of people kind of a gateway drug into old Hollywood. It's very gossipy and campy. And the its versions of stories will like take a kernel of truth and often embellish them and exaggerate them. Um, and so it, the story in that book about Dorothy Dandridge has to do um, with her. She was part of a lawsuit against Confidential Magazine. Uh, Confidential Magazine had published a, a salacious story about how she had had sex with a white man in the woods. And uh, she she said this had never happened. Um, and so she went to court. And it was part of a, a trial where a lot of celebrities were testifying or protesting against things that Confidential Magazine printed about them. But Dorothy Dandridge's story is fascinating. I mean, she's the first black actress to be nominated for the Best Actress Oscar for Carmen Jones. And her period of prominence in Hollywood had a lot to do with a romantic relationship she had with the white director, Otto Preminger, who um, uh, sort of supported her and, you know, cast her in movies and, and promoted her. Um, But she was in this position where, you know, she was fairly light skinned and extremely beautiful. And she had this relationship with this white man and other white men. And so the black community or certain aspects of the black community were against her and and accusing her of trying to be white, whereas the white community was not entirely embracing of her either. And so she kind of didn't have a place where she fit in comfortably. You also did a whole season about the story behind the Disney film Song of the South, which was I didn't actually know about this other than the song Zippity Doodah. Yeah. It was set on a Civil War plantation. I didn't even know that. It's it's set on a plantation supposedly after the Civil War, but the depictions of that of plantation life make it seem like the black characters are either still slaves or have chosen to stay on the plantation after slavery is no more. Um, And so it was actually the movie was made while Disney wanted to make it immediately after Gone with the Wind became a huge blockbuster. But for various Mm -hmm. reasons, which I deal with, um, you know, in the podcast, he wasn't actually able to produce the movie and release it until 1946. So by then, um, you know, even the, the things that had been acceptable in 1939 when Gone with the Wind came out, the world was changing more. Um, so, you know, I, I've seen people over the past day or so talking about Gone with the Wind and, um, you know, HBO Max took it off of their service and, and they in their statement, they said, you know, Gone with the Wind is a product of its time. And that's a phrase a lot of people have used about Song of the South as well. But really, mm-hmm. neither of those films were products of their time, because in, in both of those times, a lot of people thought that their depictions were inappropriate, if not offensive. Um, and I think that we have a tendency to say, oh, well, the past was the past, but we've changed. And things are so much more complicated than that. I also saw that you wrote a tweet saying that by taking these things out of circulation, they create like a fetish market for it. That's definitely been the case with Song of the South, where they used to do theatrical re-releases of their animated films. And so the last time they theatrically re-released Song of the South was in 1986. They haven't released it since. They've never released it in America on home video and they didn't put it on Disney+. And hmm. because of its commercial unavailability, a bootleg market has has sprung up. Um, you can buy DVDs of, of Song of the South at gas stations in the South. 
Um, People, there's a Japanese laser disc, which (laughs) has been um, bootlegged and and pirated um, pretty widely. And so the movie is actually pretty widely available, but because it's not commercially sold or made available by Disney, it gives rise to a sort of cult around it where certain Mm -hmm. people are like, this is a movie that the liberal snowflakes don't want you to see. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're trying to deny our heritage. They're trying to deny our history. Um, And I I worry that the same thing could happen with Gone with the Wind. Um, Obviously, just taking it off HBO Max doesn't make it completely unavailable. But Mm -hmm. one of the other things I tweeted was that um, after the Korean film Parasite won Best Picture, Donald Trump gave a speech where he was complaining, you know, in a very xenophobic way about this Korean film winning Best Picture. And he he invoked a couple of other movies from classic Hollywood as being sort of the good old days. And one of them was oh gone with the, one of them was gone with the wind. Right. So, um, you know, I just, I, I foresee <laughs> this kind of nightmare scenario where Trump and Trumpists are like, you know, these liberal snowflakes are, are trying to take away this great film from us and, and using it as sort of like a political football. Um, and it's just like, I, it shouldn't have that power. I get that, but I also get that I wouldn't necessarily want my kids to be scrolling through movies and then decide they want to watch it and watch Song of the South out of context. Like, I, you know, I can see kind of both arguments. I don't think either of those films should necessarily be available without context. Um, you know, a lot of people were asking me when I did the Song of, of the South podcast season, you know, do I think the movie should be available? And I think that what Disney should do is is repackage it with, you know, a, a five to ten minute documentary before the film so right. that you understand the context of it. And and then, you know, adults and, and anybody who wants to use it for educational purposes can do that. And it seems like that's what HBO Max is saying that they're going to do with Gone with the Wind. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we'll see. Um Certainly, the when the film has been presented in public screenings and on Turner Classic Movies over the past few years, it has had contextualizing introductions. We're going to take a quick break for some ads. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Support for everything is fine comes from Ritual. So, I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once-daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. 
You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule, essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump, and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Uh, okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. Welcome back to Everything is Fine. I read one of in one of your interviews, you said that Gloria Swanson would have had like a goop type of enterprise if she were alive today. Why is that? Oh, absolutely. She was in, you know, the early 1920s. She was preaching against sugar. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> she had like a whole health food regime that she was on. And she, you know, was always talking about it. Um, so, you know, I mean, nothing nothing that's happening today is is new at all. Um, you know, what might be new is that somebody like Gwyneth Paltrow can make an enormous amount of money sort of shilling the things that that uh, she's recommending. Whereas back then, you know, I think somebody like Gloria Swanson, like maybe like could get in business with a, a diet company or a vitamin company, but it wouldn't have been something that she had full control over. Right. So that's why she got the meals. But she, you couldn't <laughs> turn yourself into a total brand then. Yeah. Right, hmm. right, right. Another one that I was interested in was Marie Dressler, who you called the first female to conquer ageism. Uh, yeah. In the 1930s, she was one of the, the biggest stars in Hollywood. And she was in her 60s and overweight and, you know, certainly not what Hollywood considered to be not just conventionally attractive, but like kind of the medium of or like the minimum amount of tr attractive that you could be <laughs> to be <laughs> on screen. Um, but she was just like this comic star who had started in the silent era, but really kind of um, uh, had the peak of her stardom after talkies came in during the early 1930s. Um, and, you know, audiences just loved her and they they flocked to see her movies and they kind of forced Hollywood to um, to reward her and to keep casting her. Hmm. But do you think that was because she was doing uh, funny material? Well, she also did, you know, more some like more melodramatic, some serious stuff. But certainly, I mean, I think that she was not often cast in material where her attractiveness or lack thereof was a, a problem. Although she did do some sort of romance stuff, like romantic comedy stuff. Hmm. That's interesting. And was it a conscious thing or it's just something that she wanted to work? So as a result, you could say that she was fighting ageism, but it wasn't necessarily a mission of hers. The way we think of things like that, like, you know, a star or a celebrity or whatever sort of taking on the establishment, I don't think things were quite that way then. There wasn't certainly wasn't politicized um, the way that it, it is now. Who are some of your favorite undersung Hollywood women? I really like this actress, Kay Francis. 
Um, she was a big star at Warner Brothers in the 1930s, and she kind of got replaced by Betty Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, but she she had a really different vibe. She's now kind of known as sort of a, a favorite of some cinephiles because she wore clothes really well. She was tall, and she had this sort of clothes hanger body. And the costume designers took advantage of that to put her in not just like innovative avant-garde fashions, but like sometimes wacky stuff. Um <laughs> But I really like her screen presence. And she had this slight lisp, which kind of undercuts this sort of sophistication of the way she looks. Um, and she made some, you know, a lot of the movies she made was this kind of weird genre that started in the 1930s called women's pictures, you know. And so they're melodramas where somebody dies or or they're like movies where there's one woman who's both a doctor and an aviatrix. And she <laughs> has to, you know, fly to the Sahara and like, you know, save somebody. So there's sort of like adventure fantasy movies where a woman is doing something that she doesn't usually do in, you know, quote unquote, regular life. But what I really like are she did a couple of, of sort of romantic dramedies um, that I think show kind of the, the, the fullness of her talent. What is it like being a woman of a certain age working in Hollywood? Well, you know, I mean, I think that I think that things are changing a little bit. Hollywood is is a place that um, does not want to acknowledge the aging process at all. I mean, I think it's actually worse for actresses now because things have become so dystopian, you know, like we're supposed to pretend that Jennifer Aniston is 30. Um, (laughs) And, you know, like factually, we know that she's not. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't actually see any images on screen of people who are who look like their age. You know, I'm about to turn 40. I don't know what a 40 year old's supposed to look like. Um, So, you know, you just don't see them in movies and TV. You don't see somebody who's actually 40 who looks 40. Well, you have J-Lo, <laughs> an incredibly realistic portrayal of what 50 looks like. Yeah, we all pole dance over 50. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. So I think that if you're going to be on screen at all, you know, there's an, an assumption that you're just going to do whatever it takes to not um, betray the aging process. And then I do think that that extends to people who are not on camera because just the standard is so high. So it's like that's why I have certain insecurities because I or not really insecurities so much as conflict. Right. Because, you know, there is an expectation that you will just do whatever it takes. But like I don't even dye my hair. I mean, <laughs> so I'm I'm a real outlier. Um, and I don't I you know, I don't want to do these things. But sometimes I, I wonder, like, well, should I? I mean, well, like, will it actually affect, you know, if I want to sell a TV show, because I do want to do a, a documentary TV version of my podcast, right? And I've, I've started had, having meetings and, and I do want to work in that world. But it's it's sort of like, every time I even go to a meeting, you know, at, at some studio or something, I'm like, oh, God, like, what am I going to wear? You know, like, how much makeup is too much makeup? Like, I don't feel like I have any counsel in any of these things. I don't know what the right thing to do is. And I'm sure nobody else does either. Um, but I just think that in Hollywood, the beauty standards are so distorted that it's it's very difficult to know, even if you're not going to be on camera, you know, how to adapt to them. Well, I feel bad now that we said that you're of a certain age because you're not even 40. I thought from <laughs> our emails when we were chatting, I thought you were 40. Well, I feel 40 already, <laughs> but I uh, technically turned 40 in like a month. Oh, well, that's fair enough. <laughs> Well, maybe we should finish up with this question. Um, 
It's just I'm curious how the role of women in Hollywood has changed since the days of old Hollywood and how much it's changed since the days of Polly Platt. Well, one example I use in terms of Polly is that there's an episode in this season where I talk about how in 1971, after she had done production design on on two feature films and was working on her third, Polly tried to get into the Art Directors Guild. And for six months, they gave her the runaround and wouldn't let her in because they had never let in a female film art director. Hmm. And she eventually became the first because she harassed them for six months. Um, but that's, I mean, that was the state of things in 1971. Like the the production guilds were still actively trying to exclude women. So obviously things are a lot better than that now. But I do think, you know, it, even though women are getting the chance to direct films, there are women in power at studios. Um, I think it's very, very, very difficult. And I think that the even if doors are open, that doesn't mean that you know, they're wide open. And it doesn't mean that women don't have to compromise who they are and what they want to do. And, you know, I think right now it's considered sort of a big prize for, you know, any kind of independent filmmaker to be given like a Marvel movie, to be given a franchise movie. You know, increasingly female directors are slowly kind of getting those opportunities. But, you know, ultimately, like, the way that Hollywood is right now is that the, the movies that most of the industry is invested into are movies for young men. And so it's very, very rare and very difficult for this the industry to take seriously things that are geared towards women. The fact that Greta Gerwig's Little Women was a huge box office hit is a good thing. And I just hope that it yeah. creates more opportunities. Have you seen a change since uh, Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement? No. I mean, I think people pay pay lip service to, you know, everything's going to change. Things definitely take time in Hollywood. In the grand scheme of things, you know, he was sort of exposed less than three years ago. So, you know, most movies take about three years to make. Right. And that's in non-corona times. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> from, from development to production to post-production to release. So. So the new season of You Must Remember This is out now. Check it out. Is there anything else you want to add, Karina? Um, I, well, I do have a question for you guys. Yeah. This is just because I'm a listener of your podcast. Um, <laughs> is the you. True Botanicals vitamin C stuff really that great? <laughs> Everybody's obsessed with it. <laughs> I think it's worth it, but I'm not going to say that there isn't something less expensive I bought the ordinary vitamin C powder because it was like $9. And <laughs> I can tell you that I didn't really find that it did anything. So I don't know if the True Botanicals one is just way, way better, but I didn't try it. Yeah, I was using this Biosance uh, vitamin C oil for a while, and I just ran out. And so I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm in the market. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll take the plunge. Do you have any other products you want to recommend? Well, my kind of like go-to brand is Paracone MD. So, um, you know, I feel like I've tried so many different moisturizer sunscreen combos and they do one, which I guess also has vitamin C in it. But I feel like the amount that it has in it is probably not as effective as a separate vitamin C product. Um, but they I forget what it's called, but it's like it's it's the pink one. It's it's the moisturizer with SPF. Um, and it, it's it, it's I think maybe it's called Esther C. This should be a feature where we ask everybody there. <laughs> I actually think people would be really into that. That was the first one. Okay. <laughs> Glad to be a trendsetter. 
Thanks so much for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts, Talia Bacassis. And Kim France. If you like the show, be sure to rate it and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have suggestions for show ideas or anything else, email us at tallyandkim at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram that is EIF Podcast, and you can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.